You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, If you need a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers are in the aisles and they'll give you one. You're going to want to find your way to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. You'll enjoy the Bible study so much more if you have a Bible in your hand. And a very strange title for an Easter message, I have to admit. uh, The title of the message, The Gospel of Cleopas. And uh, hopefully that will become clear as we we look at uh, this passage that we're going into. Uh, here's where we're going uh, as, we, as we look. Think about all the millions of Christians that are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. How cool to be a part of all of that, right? Uh, here we are gathered in Jesus' name with millions across the world celebrating what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and rising from the, from the dead. Uh, but uh, this day nearly 2,000 years ago was quite different than this day is for us right now. For the disciples were in shock, really along with the whole world being in shock, that Jesus had been crucified. Jesus' crucifixion rocked the known world. Much like 9-11 rocked our world when uh, those uh, terrorists, those 17 terrorists took those four airplanes and drove them into the two World Trade Centers, into the Pentagon, and uh, you know, it shocked the United States. Uh, Well, much like that, all of the known world was in shock over Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, They were astonished. Uh, It is indisputable that Jesus is the most influential human by far that ever lived on this planet. No one else is even remotely close. I mean, he completely changed the world. His teaching was radical, just revolutionary. His words were so profound, so life-giving. He had seemingly an endless power. He could give sight to the blind. He could heal the sick. He could cure any disease He made a man with a withered hand grow a new hand. He caused the lame to walk. He even rose people from the grave. Lazarus dead for four days. Jesus comes along and with the word speaks and Lazarus is healed, resurrects. Amazing power, not not only over human lives and human uh, sicknesses, but even over nature. He'd speak a word, and radical storms would be silenced with a word, seemingly effortlessly. Peace, be still. Storms would stop. Not only that, even over the spiritual world. With a simple word, he could cast out demons that have tormented people for decades. There was seemingly no end to his power. 
no end to his majesty. And yet, something happens, and the disciples are shocked. Jesus was killed on a cross. The disciples were sure that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. He had so much power. Everything was moving that direction. His influence was profound. Huge crowds. Josephus tells us there was between two and three million worshipers who came on that Passover to Jerusalem on the, uh, uh, at the Passover that he was crucified on. And many of those came because they had heard of Jesus and they wanted to see. Tons of people, but now uh, they were sure he was going to set up his kingdom. They were sure he was going to rule the world in righteousness, just as the Bible uh, says that he will ultimately do. But instead of a kingdom, they got a murder. Instead of a crown, they got a cross. And Jesus went to the cross, and now the disciples are hopeless. They're confused, they're depressed, and they're hiding. They're hiding because they're afraid that the same religious leaders who just arrested and crucified Jesus are going to be coming after them. And now they don't know what to do. I mean, uh, what do I do with my life now? And so they're, they're hiding. And it's here where we pick up our story this morning on Sunday morning, uh, Luke chapter 24. If you're there, give me a big loud amen. amen. Let's read what happens on this Sunday morning. Now, on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, very early in the morning, still dark outside. Uh, most of the leaders here, the church were here before sunrise this morning. And uh, we thought of this verse as we were looking at this, like, yeah, they, you know, uh, they come super early in the morning. They and certain other women with them, if we go back just a few verses, we'll see these are the women that were there uh, with Jesus at the cross and the women that followed him to the tomb. We're going to get introduced to them in just a bit. And other women that were with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. They came to the tomb, and what were they expecting? What were they looking for? They weren't coming to the tomb in faith. They were coming to the tomb to mourn. They were brokenhearted. And they were coming to uh, put spices and, and the, the burial uh, things on Jesus' body. Verse 2. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed by this. They were just going, what in the heck? I don't understand. Where is he? What happened? That behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Verse 23 is going to tell us that these two men are angels. And here they are in just radiating, you know, clothing. Verse 5. Then as they were afraid, they bowed their faces to the earth. They just see these guys in these radiating gar garments and they go, bam, down on their faces. 
And may I just say, oh, how awesome. Can you imagine all that God has prepared for those who know him, for those who love him? These angels clothed with the very glory of God. Their appearance radiating because they themselves dwell in the presence of God. And they are just reflecting his glory. And oh, that we would understand all that God has in store for us. May I remind you, you are not a finite being. You are going to live forever. You are not eternal in that you didn't exist forever, but you are going to live throughout eternity, one way or the other. And may we just ponder and consider all that God has planned for those who are called by his name. Uh, and these gals see these, these angels, they're in awe, they fall to their faces, and look what the angels said to them. They, the angels, said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here at a tomb seeking a living God? Why are you at a gravesite? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Do you remember all the things that he taught you? Don't you remember he said this was going to happen? Look at verse 7. He told you the angels know what Jesus said. Uh, they're hanging on his every word. He is God in the flesh. They're listening. They, they say, don't you remember he told you? Verse 7, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Jesus' death was not a horrible accident at the end of a really good life. Jesus' death was not, oh man, such a bummer it worked out that way. Well, you know, it's the way it goes. No, 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 no. Jesus foretold his death and his resurrection repeatedly. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, for this purpose, I have come into the world. God did not take on a human body like some of the angels did in the Old Testament when they would manifest themselves and appear. No, no, no. God did not take on a human body. God became a man. Big difference. I guarantee you there is not one of us here who can fathom how profound that statement is, me included. God became a man for all the rest of time beyond comprehension. And Jesus would say this, and for this purpose I came, that I might go to the cross and die and resurrect. Why? Because that is how we receive salvation. God became a man because we inherited sin through a man. His name? Adam. And in order for God to be just, God just can't wipe that away, but he can allow us to inherit righteousness the same way we inherited sin. How did you inherit sin? Through a man. 
How can you inherit righteousness and God still be just? If you inherit it through a man. And so God became a man that we, he might go to the cross, take the punishment of our sin upon his own shoulders and give us his righteousness as a free gift, as an inheritance. And Jesus taught this from the beginning. You'll remember we have been studying through the book of Matthew on Sundays, verse by verse. And you'll remember just a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew chapter 20. We looked at this verse. Let's look at it again. Matthew 20, 18. Uh, Let me hear you read this. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Jesus makes it very clear how this is going to happen, where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. How it's going to happen, he's going to be betrayed to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. And they, the religious leaders, will condemn him to death. Let's go on, the rest of the verse. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Very clear prophecy not Nostradamus, nebulous prophecies. On the Milky Way, when it passes in the third sector, I mean, none of that kind of garbage. This is detailed prophecies. This is why he came. And sure enough, we know this happened exactly as he said. We looked at it at our Good Friday service. If you missed it, oh, it was a powerful service, wonderful worship. I'd encourage you to listen online. Uh, the Gentiles, he was delivered to the Gentiles by the religious leaders. Yes, that happened. The the religious leaders delivered him to Rome. And then the Romans, they mocked him and they scourged him and they crucified him. And he rose on the third day. All as he said it would happen. Uh, This is uh, just amazing, right? And so the angels are talking to the women and they're saying, Hey, look, this is exactly what he told you would happen. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. That's right. And uh, they leave and they go to go home. And, and uh, they remember, oh, that's right. Jesus said these things would happen. And I want you to know something. It is important that we hold on to this. That we do not worship a dead man. We do not even worship an empty tomb. Big deal that the tomb is still empty. Big deal. We do not worship a dead man. We do not worship an empty tomb. We worship a living God who became a man and resurrected and is still alive today. His name is Jesus. So important that we hold on to that. The angels asked the women a great question What are you doing? Why are you here seeking the living among the dead? Great question. A lot of people still doing that today. Seeking life, seeking love, looking for a reason to be alive, looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for the living among the dead. Going into a bar. Looking on Tinder. Working out at the gym. Trying to be all impressive. 
trying to build my business up to this, trying to make my name, trying to build my network. And the question would be, why are you seeking life among dead things? So many today following some dead yogi and trying to meditate on his philosophies. Why are you seeking life among the dead? Could it be that there's so much more to life than having six-pack abs? Could it be? Could it be? Why are we this way? You're not going to find life here, the angels tell them. Abundant life is found in Jesus Christ. Life and life abundant is found in Jesus, the living God who created us. May I tell you something? Salvation is not our end goal. Salvation is not the thing that we're all looking for. May I remind you of something just very, should be very obvious? Salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting line. Don't desire to just hope one day you can go to heaven. Yes, that's super important. But you were created for intimate fellowship with God. And when we uh, come to salvation, we are just coming to the starting line of what God originally planned for us. You see, sin separates us from God. The moment that uh, we sin, we are spiritually dead. And since we are in Adam, we are born spiritually dead. And, and coming to eternal life, being saved, that is just the starting line. And abundant life now starts to begin now, once we're saved, we begin to now walk with Jesus. Abundant life is found in Jesus. Abundant life is found in having all of my faults, all of my failures, all of my sins, which are many, uh, forgiven every single day. All of my faults where I go, oh man, I can't believe I did that. What a stupid thing to say. Man, I, oh, I'm such a, an abundant life is found in, Lord, thank you that your righteousness is my free gift. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that you bring me. I can't believe I did that again. Really? You can't believe you did that again? I know why you did that again. Because you're a sinner. You're good at it. An abundant life is being saved from that. And being brought in to no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And instead of dwelling on my failures, I can dwell on what Jesus wants me to do. And it's so freeing. Abundant life is having Jesus give you wisdom and discernment through his word. So that you might not only make it through the difficult storms and battles of life. But that you might actually thrive in these storms and battles of life. That you might actually have the wisdom and the discernment and the skills to have an amazing marriage. That's the abundant life. 
That you might have the wisdom and the discernment through God's word, through studying his word, through him speaking to you in prayer and meditation as you meditate on his ways and on his lordship. That you might have wisdom and discernment to be just amazing in relationships with that terrible neighbor three doors down who just seems to walk around with a stick in their ear uh, (laughs) all the time and you have the ability and the wisdom to be able to have a good relationship with them. The wisdom and discernment to know how to see into a teenager's heart and to speak words of truth that will set the course of their life that was about to go the wrong direction and to bring it back into the truth and the life and the grace that is there for them in God's plan for them and you just speak truth. That is the abundant life. And this is what Jesus brings to those who follow him, to those who call him uh, Lord, just to triumph over all of life's problems. Abundant life is found knowing that when I die, I will not be stand before him worried that I'm going to make, I will not stand before him in the righteousness of David Menard, which is like filthy, stinking rags. But I will stand before him in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imparted to me freely. Oh, that is abundant life. And I can't wait to stand before him and to hear his words to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in just a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. For it was my joy to redeem you and to save you to myself. Welcome home. Wow. I was at the hospital yesterday uh, down in Chula Vista. My father-in-law, Lisa's dad, uh, liver failing, kidneys shutting down. Uh, They're taking him off the IVs and they're going to send him home for hospice care. And I walked into the room and haven't been able to see him for a while because of the COVID rules at the hospital. And I saw him and he had lost so much weight, just looked like skin and bone, bruises all over from you know his body not functioning properly. And uh, just to sit by his bedside and to think, oh, you're gonna stand before your savior. You're gonna stand before your creator. How amazing. This is the abundant life that was found in Jesus Christ and it is found in nowhere else. And that Easter morning, the women discovered that their relationship with Jesus is not over. He's still alive and he's calling them. He's working in their life. Matthew's gospel tells us that after these gals left the tomb where we just read right here, they were going back home and guess who appears to them? Jesus. And Jesus appears to them and and Mary comes to him and she just grabs a hold of him and she says, oh my gosh, I'm never going to let you go. You, you, I, you went to the cross. I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm just going to hold on to you. And Jesus says, Mary, let go. Let go. I'm going to ascend up into the, into the heaven, into the, into the throne. I'm going to ascend up into heaven and you have work to do. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that I have risen from the grave and Peter yeah Peter had messed up pretty big (laughs) Peter's probably wondering am I even saved much less a disciple 
And Jesus says, go and tell the disciples and Peter, I have risen from the grave. And you say, wow, it must have been hard for Jesus to forgive Peter. I mean, after he denied him three times, after he had boasted, said, I'll never deny him. After he, not only did he deny him, but he cursed and he took a, a vow. I swear to God, I've never even met the man. I don't know him. And the rooster crows three times and Peter looks over and they make eye contact. And it must have been hard for Jesus to forgive Peter. Not at all. This is Jesus' nature. And Jesus he became a man. You talk about suffering. He became a man. Emptied himself of all of his glory. And became a man. And then went to a cross. And took an incredible punishment. And the weight of all the sin of humanity on his own shoulders. Not hard at all for him to forgive Peter. That's why he did all this. It is my delight to receive what I paid the price for. If you think, man, I've got some sins. I don't know if Jesus can forgive. It would be his delight. It's what he loves to do. To bring you to himself and to set you on the right path and to clean you up and to set you out as the son, daughter of God that you were created to be. And so uh, he tells the women, hey, we've got work to do. Go and tell the disciples. And uh, man, I, uh, life has so much more purpose when we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The women were sad. They were discouraged. They were depressed. They're coming to the tomb. Now they are full of life. Oh my gosh, there's kingdom work to do. When Jesus saves you, it's not the finish line. It's the starting line. Now we have work to do together. I have got one. I want you to be about my kingdom business. So many people today are depressed. They're taking Prozac. They're taking antidepressants. They're discouraged. So many people today are addicted, battling this addiction and that addiction. And they're going through life just like, well, I got this addiction. I, I can't do that right there, man. I can't do that. Oh, I really, I want to do that. But no, I, I don't do that anymore. And, but I like that. Oh, but I can't do that. But I like that. No, I can't do that. And that's their life. What a miserable life. And I tell you, it's futile. But abundant life happens when we begin to realize, wow, he saved me just to have the starting line, and now he's commissioning me. Hey, he's got work for us to do. I want to use you to be a builder of my kingdom. I want to use you to speak truth into others' lives. I want to use you to be a bright light on a city, you know, on a, on a dark place. I want to use your life in amazing ways. I want to partner together with you. Amazing. I know firsthand that I would be bound and laden with all kinds of addictions had Jesus not got a hold of me and called me to himself. I don't have time for those things now. It's not a big fight. I, am, I got great things to do in Jesus' name. And there's nothing special about me. This is the calling that he puts on each and every one of his followers. We call this church the Mission Church because he has a mission for all of you. That's why we named the church that. And uh, life has so much more purpose. There's so much more to live for than good abs, guys. So much more. And uh, the, the women are finding that purpose. So the, Mary and the other gals, they go and tell the disciples. Let's pick, it back, pick our story back up. I spent too much time on that. Uh, verse 9. 
they return from the tomb, uh, and uh, again, after they left the tomb, Jesus met them. Uh, now they return from Jesus meeting him. They return from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven. That's the eleven disciples, the apostles. Uh, Judas has already killed himself, right? To the eleven. And to the rest of Jesus' disciples. Jesus had hundreds and thousands of disciples. And they tell everybody they can tell. He's risen. He's risen. Just like he said he would. Verse 10. And now we know who these women are. It tells us. It was Mary Magdalene. Joanna. And Mary, the mother of James. That's one of the twelve. Uh, there were two James that were of the twelve. The uh, big James and little James. This Mary was the mother of little James. And other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Uh, yeah, not only these women, but also the other women with them. And may I just say, uh, way to go girls, girl power, right? <laughs> like who was the first one who Jesus appeared to? To the gals. Who was the first one at the tomb? The gals. Uh, God is no respecter of persons. And women have a very important role in the kingdom. God wants to use women's life. God wants to use men's life. He's gifted us all differently, but he wants to use every single one of us. And look at these who he's using. Who are they? Well, the first one we read is Mary Magdalene. Who is she? Well, she was a worshiper of Jesus. Why? Why is she at the tomb at five in the morning? Here's why. Because she had seven demons that she was plagued with. A life plagued by demonic oppression. I don't know if you've ever encountered evil. I have. But to be possessed, I can't even imagine. And oh, horrible. And she was delivered. And she never changed. She was at Jesus' side from that time on. The other one, it was an interesting gal. Her name, Joanna. Do you know who Joanna was? Joanna was married to a guy named Chusa. Everybody say Chusa. Crazy name, right? Chusa. Chusa. You know who Chusa was? Chusa was the CPA. He was the accountant for Herod's finances. And he was married to Joanna. And Joanna had been healed by Jesus. And now she became an ardent follower of Jesus. And she financially supported Jesus' ministry, which I think is so cool because she's using Herod's money <laughs> to sp so sponsor Jesus. Just amazing, right? And so this is, uh, these are the gals that he, he uses. Uh, verse 11. And, and their words seemed like idle tales. They go to the apostles, they go, they tell them these things, and to the apostles, their words seemed like idle tales, like fairy tales, and they did not believe them. Maybe you're here this morning, and this is you. You're hearing all this stuff, and you're going, yeah, right, preacher boy. I don't know about any of that stuff. Sounds like fairy tales to me. That's where the disciples were. That's where the apostles were. They just thought, yeah, right, right? Verse 12, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Yeah, after the girls tell him, Peter's sitting there, he's thinking about it, he goes, I'm going. He just gets up and takes off running for the tomb. It doesn't tell us here, but in John's gospel, John's gospel tells us that John, after Peter runs out the door, he thinks about it a little bit, he goes, I'm going to go too. And he takes off running to the tomb. 
And John, for whatever reason, just happens to tell us, uh, by the way, I outran Peter and I got to the tomb first. <laughs> Don't know why, but tells us. And John goes in, comes up to the tomb, but he won't go in out of reverence. Uh, and, and he sticks his head into the tomb and he looks. And you know what he sees? He sees the linen cloths lying there. And John believes. Wow, he's risen from the dead. John believes. Peter, on the other hand, different story. Verse 12. Peter arose, ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened, but still unsure, still not believing, still going, I don't know, man. I'm not sure about any of this. I wonder what has happened here. And Jesus reveals himself to Peter, right? Uh, it doesn't say it here. It says it later at the end of the chapter. We're not going to read it today, but you can read it on your own. Uh, uh, he, he reveals himself. Uh, I want you to know something. Peter here, he's unsure. He's still doubting. And I want you to know, it's okay to be skeptical about Jesus being alive as long as you're honest. It's okay to be skeptical. As a matter of fact, it's good to bring your brains to the table. Chuck Colson, uh, a guy who was... How many of you remember Watergate with President Nixon? How many of you remember that? I am not a crook, right? Remember that? Yeah, you are. Uh, it just so happens, Chuck Colson was one of the chief legal defense team on all that. And it just so happens there were 12 guys that Nixon was in cohorts with on Watergate. And they took those 12 guys, like the 12 disciples, and they isolated them all. And they drilled them. And under pressure, knowing, you know, everything was coming to the surface, it was in all the news, you might remember all that. And with all of the, the heat of all that, every single one of those 12 sang like a canary to get themselves out of jail. And through that, Chuck Colson came to Christ. Somehow God spoke to his heart. He had been studying. He had considered the 12 apostles. He had considered the millions of martyrs in the first three centuries of Christianity and that none of them would deny their faith because they had seen the risen Lord and Chuck Colson came to faith. It's okay to be skeptical about Jesus as long as you are honest with your skepticism. If Jesus is alive, he is more than capable of overcoming your uncertainties. What's not okay is being dishonestly skeptical. What does that mean? That means that you're skeptical because you really don't want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you really don't want to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You don't want to do that because you love, what do you love? You love sin. I remember being that man. I heard a little bit about Jesus. Ah, sounds pretty right, but not for me. I want to sin. I love sin. And I was pretty good at it. And let me ask you, if you're dis... Oh, no, I don't know about that. Maybe, you know about me, I just, I don't know. If you're dishonestly skeptical because you love sin, do you not think that he doesn't know that? Do you think that he doesn't see that? 
dangerous place to be. Peter was honestly skeptical. And Jesus helped Peter's faith grow. He's going to reveal himself, as I mentioned to him personally, and how intimate that talk must have been as Jesus appears to Peter and he says, Hey, it's okay, Peter. I know. And I forgive you. You're cleansed. You're mine. Now let's get back on track. One of those times when he, Jesus had that talk with Peter is John 21. You can read it on your own, uh, but powerful. Uh, now we change in our story. We leave the 12 apostles, the 11 apostles, and the gals, and we leave to two other believers who are really struggling in their faith because Jesus has been crucified. And this is a, a fascinating, fascinating story. Take a look at this. We're in verse 15 now. Now behold, two of them, that's two disciples, not of the eleven, two different disciples. They were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. They're probably traveling back home to their hometown of Emmaus from Jerusalem because they had gone there for the Passover and they had seen what had happened to Jesus. And it tells us as they're walking home that seven-mile journey... Uh, here's what happens, verse 14. They talked together of all the things which had happened. Jesus being crucified, how disappointed they were, how they, I, I lost faith. I thought he was the Messiah. I guess we were wrong. I guess we blew it. I guess he's not the Messiah. It's too bad. I don't understand. He was so powerful. His teaching was so amazing. And that's what they're talking about. They're talking together of all the things that had happened can't believe how they treated him can't believe they crucified him all that stuff verse 15 so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them isn't that crazy they're sitting there just walking on a road out of nowhere Jesus starts walking up like a regular guy hey how's it going uh pretty good how about you yeah good good you guys having a good day uh yeah, we're all right uh can I help you with something uh, you mind if I walk with you? Uh, no, come on. Okay, come on. I mean, how humble is Jesus, right? Look at this. Crazy. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Do you want to know something? Unless Jesus gives you spiritual sight, there is no way you can see him. There is no way you can know him. Jesus told Nicodemus, a religious leader, unless a man is born again, there is no way he can even begin to see the kingdom of God. Forget entering it. That's what the question that Nicodemus asked. Hey, how do you enter? He says, don't worry about so much about entering Nicodemus. You might worry about even seeing it. Unless you're born again, you can't even see it. And they can't see who Jesus is. Jesus hasn't opened their eyes. Uh, Verse 17. That's why we have to be born again, by the way. There's no other way. Verse 17. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to these guys. What kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another as you walk? And why are you guys so sad? Uh, this is comical. This is Jesus' humor. Look how lighthearted Jesus is here. Jesus isn't all bummed out. Jesus isn't depressed. As a matter of fact, his grave clothes were folded up and neatly and put in place. He wasn't panicking in the tomb. He's got everything under control. He was in no hurry. There's no time pressure. He's like, A-OK. -okay. And he pulls up with these guys and he just 
gives him some joke. Hey, what are you guys talking about? As if he doesn't know. When Jesus asks us a question, by the way, it's never for his sake. It's always for our own. What are you talking about? And why are you so sad? Bring him to the truth, right? Verse 18. Then one of those whose name was Cleopas, this is where we get the title of our message, the gospel according to Cleopas, uh, answered and said to him, by the way, we don't know who the other, the other one was that was walking on the road. Uh, I personally think it might have been Luke, the author of this gospel, who doesn't use his own name, who was there walking with Cleopas, not one of the twelve, but a disciple of Jesus. Uh, and he's walking there with them on the road, and Cleopas says, look what, look, look what Cleopas says to Jesus. He doesn't know it's Jesus. He says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happen there these days? Do you realize how he's talking to Jesus? How is he talking to him? Dude, did you just fall off the turnip truck? Are you ignorant? I mean, what the heck? It'd be like on September 12th, a few years back after the, you know, what, what, what are you guys sad about? Are you the only person in the world who doesn't know what happened? That's what he's thinking, right? That's how pervasive and how shocked the world was. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened these days? And look at, verse, look at Jesus, 19. And Jesus says, what things? It's amazing. So he said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was mighty indeed. Oh, I mean, he, he made blind people see. He fed 5,000 with five little loaves and two little fish. He did all, I mean, he starts telling them all the things. He, not only was he mighty indeed, he cared for the poor. He, he was friends to those who were just down and out. He was no respecter of person. Not only was he mighty indeed, he was mighty in word before God and all the people. Man, when he spoke, his words just, they moved you. They gave me so much insight. I've never heard anyone speak like him. And they're telling him about, they're telling Jesus about Jesus, which is so cool. Verse 20, and they tell Jesus that, hey, all the chief priests and our rulers, they delivered him to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we, and I want you to circle this word, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Circle the word were. What does that mean? We were hoping. What does that mean? We're no longer hoping. We're now hopeless. We're now hopeless. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since things happened. And yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. And they came back to us and they told us that they had seen the vision of the angels who said he was alive. But we don't really believe it. They were really emotional. I think they were just, you know, they're probably tired and overstressed and I don't believe it. And certainly, verse 24, of those, excuse me, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, that would be Peter and John, and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And again, they say, sounds sketchy to me, you know, just, I don't believe it. And look at verse 25. Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow in heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
What did Jesus just say? Oh, how slow you are to believe all that is written about me by all of the prophets in the Bible. Oh, how slow you are to believe and to understand your Bible. That's what Jesus just said, right? Look at verse 26. Ought not the Christ, that's the word, word for Messiah, ought not the Messiah, the anointed one, have suffered these things on the cross and entered into his glory? Had he not suffered on the cross and resurrected to ascend up into his glory? And look at this, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. himself. I want you to circle and double underline the word himself. Starting in Moses and all the prophets. What is Moses? Moses means the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Starting in Genesis and in all of the prophets, he began to give them a Bible study that revealed that the entire Bible was about himself. Wow. If there was ever a Bible study in all of human history that I would want to be at, it was that one. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine what, uh, what, what he must have said? Here's the question. It's Jesus standing there with them. Why does he take him back to a Bible study? Why does he bring him back to God's word? Here's why, because they're not believing. And you say, I don't understand. Well, here's what God says about his word. Faith comes by understanding, and understanding comes by the word of God. If you're having a hard time believing God, here's what I know about you. You're not reading your Bible. You're not studying it. You're not taking it to heart. Faith comes by understanding. And understanding comes by the word of God, Romans 10, 19. And what does Jesus do when they're doubting? He takes them back to the word of God, beginning at Genesis. And oh, I would have loved to be a part of that study. And here's what I know. Though I can't be a part of that study, I have the same spirit of Christ in me and so do you that was leading Christ. I have the same word of God that he has, and so do you. And so as we begin to meditate on him, he will lead us into that same Bible study. And I bet Jesus took Cleopas and said, I want to take you back to Genesis 1 and creation. It was all about me. For God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Let us make men and we'll have fellowship with them and we'll be in relationship with them and we'll bless them and we'll build a world for them and a universe for them and we'll provide everything for them and we'll lead, guide them and direct them to all truth. Let us make man in our image. And Jesus looks at them and says, that was me. It was God the Father, it was God the Son, and it was God the Holy Spirit. The us was me, Jesus said. And then he takes them to Adam and Eve. And they sinned. 
There they were in the garden and they sinned. And when they sinned, the glory of God that clothed them departed from them and they were naked and they lost the presence of God. And in their spiritual nakedness, they run and hide from God, which is what happens when we sin. Sin separates us from God. We don't want to get near God when we're sinning. And what did they do with their spiritual nakedness? They do what we do. They started by the works of their hands trying to clothe their spiritual nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together. And they tried to clothe themselves. God came looking for them. They didn't come looking for God. God came looking for them, which is the same thing that happens to you and me. You didn't go looking for God. God came looking for us. God came looking for you. And God comes looking for them and says, where are you? What's, what have you done? I sinned and I'm naked. And I made these, and God says it's an inadequate clothing. And we try to clothe ourselves with the work of our hands, doing good works, giving away money, doing whatever we think is going to make us a good person. It's a sham. It won't work. It's an inadequate covering. God says that covering will never work. And God does something. God told him, on the day you sin, you will surely die. And God did something very gracious. He brought an animal. And he allowed a substitutionary death. An animal died in their place. And God took the skin of that animal. It was the first time they'd ever seen death. God took the skin of that animal and he put that skin. He clothed them with the skin of the animal. And Jesus says, I was that animal. That's me. I took the punishment of your sins so that you don't have to die. And now I clothe you with my righteousness. That animal in the Garden of Eden, the first sacrifice was a picture of me. I am the greater animal. Wow. Just amazing. God then takes them, Jesus then takes them to 2060 BC. He says, I called a man named Abraham to myself. And I made a covenant with him. I said, you're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to be my people. I want to set my love on you. And I want you to be in a relationship with me. And I called this man. And he had one son. His son's name was Isaac. And when Isaac was th about 30 years of age, I told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham was brokenhearted. And with tears streaming down his face, I told him, God told him, go to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice your son. And so Abraham did. That mountain just happened to be Mount Moriah. It was a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. And as Abraham journeyed to Mount Moriah, his son was as good as dead in his eyes knowing what was coming. God takes him to Mount Moriah with just tears in his eyes. He brings his son, Isaac, 30 years old, looking at his dad, going, Dad, I see the wood for the offering. I see the cords to bind the, the, the sacrifice to the, uh, to the wood, but where is the offering? Abraham says, God will provide himself an offering. And Abraham takes Isaac with tears in his eyes, and he goes to kill his only son as a sacrifice. And God says, stop. 
I hate human sacrifice. This isn't about human sacrifice. This was a foreshadow. You see, 2,000 years later, another father, God, would offer his son as a sacrifice on the exact same mountain, Mount Moriah, where Jesus was crucified. Only this time, the father would not pull away and the son would be offered. Jesus looks at the two men on the road to Emmaus and says, I am the greater Isaac. Wow, and they're blown away. And they're blown away. Time does not allow us to go through all of the stories. Oh, I wish I could tell you about Joseph. And how his brothers, his 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, how they rejected him and didn't know him and they sold him for pieces of silver. Sound familiar? And they beat him and sold him for pieces of silver. And he went in and he became the king of all the land, the, the, sitting on the right hand of Pharaoh, on the right hand of the throne, governing all the nations of the earth. And his brothers, Israel, they come back to him, the, ten, to, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 11, they come back and they, they, there's a famine in the land and they need food and they do not recognize their brother ruling and reigning over all the nations. A picture of the Jews and Jesus today. They don't recognize him. And they get their food and they leave. And Joseph weeps that his brothers don't know him. And they go, become starving to death again. And they come back a second time for food. And when they come back the second time, Joseph chooses to reveal himself to them as their brother. And they realize, my brother is on the throne, at the right hand of the throne, ruling over all the nations. And Jesus would tell the men on the road to Emmaus, I am the greater Joseph. And that's a picture of me and Israel. And they don't recognize me now, but I'm, uh, they will when I come the second time and they will reign with me through the millennium. Wow. I'm the greater Joseph. He takes them to David and Goliath and he says, hey, there's this young boy named David and there's this giant. He's bigger than any giant anyone has ever seen. He is so massive. He is so huge that the entire army of Israel is trembling in their boots. And every man who should be a warrior of God became a coward and not one man would stand in faith against that giant. He was just too big. And so young David, just a wimpy boy, just, just a teen, goes against that giant with nothing, absolutely nothing, but a sling and a stone. And with divine power, he shoots that stone into the forehead of that giant, and he takes that giant down. And then David, what does David do? Does David say, see all you losers? Look at you men of Israel. What's wrong with you? That's what you should have done. And now all the wealth is mine. No, no, David doesn't do that. David says, guys, it's okay. No worries. It's God who brought the deliverance. And he shares all the wealth of the plunder, all the spoils. He shares with all the coward soldiers. And Jesus says, I am the greater David. I have slain death and I have slain sin and I have slain evil single-handedly. And I give you all of the rewards of the kingdom. I am the greater David. 
And on and on I could go. We're only partway through the Bible. But on and on he goes. I wish I had time to tell you about Hosea and all of the stories. On and on. They're profound and they're all about Jesus. And beginning with Moses, he goes through the entire Bible. And then he goes to the prophets. We didn't even get to the prophets. I wish we could. Oh my gosh. And he shows that all the prophets were about Jesus. Just amazing. Just amazing. I wish I could tell you about Jonah. The one who was commissioned by God to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he hated the assignment. He said, no way, I'm not going. And so he goes into a boat and he goes into the sea and he gets thrown over. He gets swallowed by a great fish and he's in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days. And he's as good as what? Dead. And after three days, supernaturally, he's resurrected. He's barfed up by the fish. Guess where? On the shore of Nineveh where he was supposed to be. And he goes and he preaches to the Gentiles. And guess what? They believe him and they're saved. And Jesus says, I am the greater Jonah. Israel didn't receive me, but now I'm going to preach to the Gentiles and they're going to receive me. And here you are. Here you are. Jesus says, I am the greater Jonah. And you say, wow, David, if everything, in order for that to be true, in order for every story in the Bible to be a prophetic foreshadow of Jesus, God would have to be very involved in human history. And God would have to be very involved in the lives of individual men. And may I ask, could it be that God is equally involved in your life right here? right now could it be that God is equally involved in your history and could it be that God is equally involved in your present and somehow we sit here and now inexplicably God's history and our history your history have met but they haven't met you know like parallel they've met in a head-on collision Oh my gosh, just like Chuck Colson. Oh my gosh, all of this is true. It's okay to be skeptical. It's not okay to be dishonestly skeptical. The evidence is crystal clear. What are you going to do with this risen Lord? His name is Jesus, and he's calling you to himself. What are you going to do? How will you respond? Shall we stand? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.